From seven days of the week to the seven wonders of the world, culture is shaped by sevens, and the BMW 7 Series is no exception. Be welcomed in with automatic opening doors. Shape your experience behind the wheel with a curved display. Or recline in the back seat and escape into the 31-inch theater screen. Reshape the way you drive in the redefining BMW 7 Series. BMW, the ultimate driving machine. See your local BMW Centric today for a test drive. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Um, so yes. we, we were, uh, it was not. Uh, we were, it was the same job. We were still just uh, uh, in, uh, in charge of this, this, the, the U.S. stock market at the time. He was the team leader for stocks. And <coughs> all right, everyone, uh, we're here to uh, record the uh, look back at our favorite stories of 2015 episode of Odd Lots. I'm Joe Weisenthal, managing editor at Bloomberg Markets. And I'm Tracy Alloway, executive editor of Bloomberg Markets. And we've assembled a fantastic team of Bloomberg News people, reporters, and editors to talk about what were the great market stories of 2015. Could you all just introduce yourselves real quickly? I'm Chris Nagy, the managing editor for stocks at Bloomberg News. I'm Matthew Bosler. I cover the Federal Reserve. I am Max Abelson, Bloomberg News reporter. I'm Ed Hammond. I cover deals for Bloomberg. I'm Matt Levian. I'm a columnist for Bloomberg View. Right, let's get going. We'll start with you, Chris Nagy. You cover stocks. Uh, what do you have for us? Speaking as the managing editor for stocks at Bloomberg and as sort of a connoisseur of Armageddon scenarios, <laughs> um, I, I, I sort of have to say that the August, uh, the August 24th, the late August sell-off in the stock market is my favorite story. It had, it had everything. It had everything from um, this is the big one in the bond market to this is the big one in the volatility market. It had a, sort of a flash crash. It had um, humans are the problem. Humans on the floor of the NICE are the problem. It had China. Uh, it had the dollar. It had pretty much everything that could be pulled into uh, a, a thesis that this is the end of the world or this is 2008. And as a connoisseur of these things, um, one thing that you notice over the last five years is generally they haven't come true. So I just thought, you know, everyone who was hoping for the end of the world let all of their guns fly on roughly August 24th. <laughs> there was quite a sell-off. It was painful. It was not pleasant for anyone in the market. And then um, two or three months later, we're merrily on our way, and uh, it's just looking like, you know, just another one of these ripples. I mean, not this is clearly the biggest of them all, but it's pretty much repaired at this point. I just think it's uh, the story of the market since, since 2008. Don't you love how healthy corrections are always the corrections that have stopped? <laughs> right. There's that. Right. As long as they don't uh, turn into 2008, everyone's happy to have them. I mean, I think there's there is something to be said for that. The, the difference, what's normalcy in the market? I mean, you go two, two and a half years with the VIX at 
like 15, that uh, very sound arguments could be made that that's the weird thing. And, and things like the end of August, that that's kind of what's supposed to happen. I think people are, are aware of this fact. I mean, again, right, you're absolutely right. As long as it starts around 12 12% or so, they're, they're willing to say that's what's supposed to happen. I remember like that morning, the Dow opened down like about a thousand points, was yep. it? And then it was like a really, like within 20 minutes, it was like sharp. At one point, it was like down 1%. Yeah. And amazing. then like it started selling. But that was just like an absolutely unbelievable morning. Yeah, there's no doubt. That ranks in the top couple of days. Was that like, what, what's your favorite day of all time, not just this year? Did you have another day that you've loved? That would be the flash crash, no question oh, yeah. about it, in Mar- Mar- May of 2010. I mean, that was the weirdest thing. And by you know, that was the first one of these things. That was the first really machine-fermented, yeah. just freak-out in the stock market that nobody knew anything, had any idea of what was going on. Now now we've seen flash crashes, and I think that's part of the problem, that we see any decline, any rapid decline. We say, that's a flash crash. That's oh, yeah. definitely something <laughs> broken. It, it very easily might not be something broken. And I actually have to say, in retrospect, that, again, it looks like sort of what's supposed to happen in the market every once in a while maybe a little faster but Uh, thanks chris all right we're here with the great max abelson max what was your favorite story of 2015 go on max i i chose my favorite story of the year was an actual uh written story and i I decided not to pick one from bloomberg just so no one could accuse me of sucking up to my wonderful colleagues um you know 2015 was a long year and way back in in uh in may of 2015 it seems like a long time ago ross ulbricht was oh, sentenced yeah. to prison, sentenced oh, to life. Yeah. And Wired story, the rise and fall of the Silk Road. I, a lot of stories pretend to be rise and falls. This one was so vast that the rise was part one and the fall was part two. What made the story so great? Well, for one thing, it was Who exciting. Wrote it? Do you remember? Yeah, I do. It was uh, Josh Behrman um, and Tomer, uh, Toner Hanukkah. And in, incidentally, I think it also had additional reporting from a New York Times reporter. I don't know, n- don't know how that worked. But uh, have you guys ever read the Elvis Presley biography by Peter Gralnick? Um, the first book is The Rise, and the second book is The Fall. I highly recommend that. That's one of my favorite books of all time. Beautiful book. But Elvis's rise was so dramatic, and his fall was so sad. And the same thing goes for Silk Road. All right. We're going to move to another area of the market where there's been lots of activity this year, which is in mergers and acquisitions. Ed? Uh, um Yes, M and A has been has been crazy this year. Actually, the busiest year ever. Uh, we, I think if you, if you run our numbers, it's like four point one or four point three trillion, depending on which deals you include and exclude. Which either way is a record high. So it's kept everyone very busy, uh, us included. So I suppose I have to say my favourite story. Right, or was there one? Deal? Yeah. Well, there is kind of one deal, um, but I suppose I would say more. It's like one company. So I know we as M&A reporters are supposed to be kind of cheerleaders for all uh, activity and all, all particularly all good M&A, but my favorite deal story of the year is Valiant. Kind of I, knew, I had a feeling that when, when, you said, when you said it was not a deal but a company, I was like, it's got to be It's got to be Valiant, right? So, so everything they've touched this year has provided just glorious opportunity to kind of write fun stories. So, you know, from them buying a female Viagra drug for a billion dollars, which was like way more than anyone thought it was worth. God's gift to headline um, writers. Right, exactly. And then they bought some gastrointestinal stuff, which they also seem to screw up because they overpaid because they cornered themselves on the debt. And then just the best bit of the whole thing was when the wheels came off a couple of months ago, when obviously the uh, Citroen research piece came out, the short selling research uh, shares just got can demolished. You, can you, for the people that don't pay as much attention to uh, this as we do, can mm. you give like a 30-second description of what Valiant is and why its yeah. strategy is so controversial? Yeah, so Valiant essentially is is a sort of classic roll-up play. It, it 
does deal after deal after deal to kind of grow its uh, to grow its earnings and has made a huge amount of money for its shareholders. The problem is, and the reason it's so detested in the pharmaceutical world is, it relies on buying companies that have quite a lot of research and development and just removing that completely. So it will get rid of all of the R&D kind of day one and then just run off the existing portfolio of drugs that that company had Hmm. and sort of almost create like an annuity type business. Now, in pharma, this is seen as an appalling thing to do because obviously people need to be investing all the time in R&D to actually keep new drugs coming through the system and to treat the diseases and to improve um, treatments for existing diseases. So Valiant is sort of the uh, the bad boy of pharma. I suppose, Wait a second. Replaced. I know, I was just thinking, <laughs> they've been replaced slightly by Turing recently, but they're a bigger and, and in some ways badder uh, bad boy. Mm. And and it was just great. The wheels came off, the shares were destroyed. He, you had Mike Pearson, who's the chief exec of Valiant and very sort of, you know, had been very upbeat the whole time. He, he sort of was being wheeled out. He looked kind of like a penguin that had been put down in the desert, sort of sweating <laughs> profusely and bulging in his suits. And then he had Bill Ackman, believe it or not, as his Did you ever get that into a story or a headline? No. Penguin wheeled no, out into I think the that desert, been, I, I think I, in his suit. The conversations with the PRs would have been too Chris, brutal afterwards. Coming from like a stock perspective, Valiant was also a huge story, and there was this whole issue of like these independent tweeters and researchers and bloggers sort of driving the story right right i think it's it's the 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 best example that yet of that that kind of a i don't want to say raid but it's certainly the all of the tools that are available to people who wanted stocks to go down were in were in full display during that whole thing adding to the i mean clearly adding to the volatility it was, it was also interesting the amount of purchase those things got this time i mean that's going on all of the time in the stock market crazed and less crazed people are, are saying bad things about stocks all the time. With Valiant, they just found their timing. I mean, they just nailed it. So I know I said I wasn't going to choose a favorite story, but since we're on the topic of Valiant, one of the stories I really liked this year was by Bloomberg News, and it was about how all the analysts had buy ratings on Valiant for years and years right. and years, and were completely <laughs> caught offside. I want to uh, bring in uh, Matt Bosler into it. One of the aspects of the Valiant story, arguably, that enabled them to do this huge roll-up strategy has been cheap money. And Matt, you cover the Fed, or uh, low interest rates, lots of interest in buying debt, you cover the Fed. And so obviously, that was a huge story. But what was your favorite uh, story this year? Yeah, well, actually, along those lines, it's sort of the the how money has been becoming tighter this year that I found the most interesting. So to like sort of bring it back to the August 24th stock market sell-off, um, and kind of put the Fed angle on it. it. It's interesting. That was actually my favorite story too, because that was a um, assessment date for one of these big new post-crisis banking regulations that is just being phased in now, even though these things have been in the works in Basel, Switzerland, for years. And so, August twenty-fourth, July thirty-first, September thirtieth, um, quarter end, which we also saw like some stock market turmoil. And then, of course, this month we're seeing um, all of these regulations coming in, forcing banks to sort of shrink their balance sheets and, you know, just liquidity sort of being sucked out of the system this year. And we've been sort of waiting for this, but these regulations haven't really come into effect until the second half of this year. So I found it very interesting that these these certain dates, like August 24th, you know, seems to be a coincidence that there was this GSIB capital surcharge, we had Mm. the biggest stock market sell-off, you know, it was the low in the dollar-yuan exchange rate. And all of this stuff just sort of points to, like, less liquidity in in not only, you know, money markets, which we've all been paying attention to very closely, right, from a Fed Fed beat, but also in, in risk assets and even the stock market. 
So do you think that sort of volatility and low levels of liquidity is the new normal in markets? It does kind of seem that way. Yeah, I mean, it's only been getting worse and worse this year. And there's no real sign from, you know, the Fed or the regulators that they would like to step in and help out because this was kind of the whole point all along, right, was to make the markets less risky. And now we're sort of seeing the side effects of that. Has it? Yeah, Has well, it made the market less risky? Definitely, like, the banks, you know, are not doing as much intermediation, and so I guess they, you know, they can't get hurt. But, you know, with less intermediation comes less liquidity in markets. And it's kind of becoming almost these mini shocks that are emanating to the real economy once a quarter. And that's something the Fed has had to deal with. You know, we saw them take a pass on tightening in September, and it was kind of largely because of that market volatility we'd seen just before in August. So I have also remembered another one of my favorite stories, which was the Third Avenue uh, fund mm. closure, which seems to be the trade-off, right, of having a bunch of risk moved out of banks and onto the buy side, which means when things go pear-shaped, investors get the short end of the stick, right? Yeah, exactly. And, you know, we're not to the look ahead to 2016 yet. But, you know, that's that's one of these things that's been interesting on the Fed beat. Now we're all talking about, okay, the next Fed move is going to be contingent upon actual progress on inflation and not just confidence in their inflation forecast. But if the high yield credit markets keep blowing up, then none of that's really going to matter anyway, probably so. Matt Levine, uh, you write a lot about finance and markets and all sorts of things. What was your favorite story of 2015? Tracy, I think you know what my favorite story of 2015 was. Um, I read a lot about finance, but I read a lot about bond market liquidity. Oh, yes. And I think my favorite story might be the uh, story of bond market liquidity. You coined an acronym, right? Uh, I, well, it's uh, it's not really pronounceable. I, I sometimes think poabamol, but yes, people are worried about <laughs> bond market liquidity has appeared in my uh, in my morning newsletter for, you know, 150 times in a row, give or take. (laughs) So what is bond market liquidity and why did you like this story so much? So bond market liquidity is just like the ability to, to buy or sell bonds. So the story goes that it used to be that bonds traded by calling up dealers. You call up a bank and you, if you want to buy a bond, you sell, you buy the bond from a bank. If you want to sell a bond, you sell it to the bank. The bank kind of stood in the way, in, in between everything, and they kept big inventories of bonds. And the worry in the last like couple of years, I would say, is that with the Volcker rule, with capital regulation, banks are no longer as much in that business as they used to be. And, uh, and so it's become harder to buy and sell bonds. That's a thing, a th- you know, thing that people worry about. But um, when it becomes more interesting and more worrying is that you combine that with a lot more bonds are held by mutual funds than used to be. And there's this worry that mutual funds, because they let investors take their money out anytime they want, investors might take a lot of money out. The mutual funds that own bonds have to sell all these bonds to meet those redemptions. They can't do it. It's become harder to sell bonds. And that's going to lead to a big downward spiral and a disaster. So this has been predicted for a year or two. So if I may, the weirdest thing about this story, which is also one of my favorite stories, obviously, but the weirdest thing is that people have been talking about it for years. And it's like this major worry that's hung over the market. And it seems to be the things that people don't think about that usually turn out to be problematic, right? Yeah. I mean, that's one of the reasons my favorite story is it's a media predicted or a, a, a widely predicted <laughs> media endorsed potential future crisis right right and you don't see a lot of that and you know I, I, my bias is sort of similar to yours that like the uh, the um, the odds of the thing that everyone predicts being a crisis actually being a crisis are very low and so you have like you know the bond market liquidity story has gone through a couple of tests right like there's uh, just like two weeks ago the third avenue focus credit fund, 
did the thing everyone predicted, right? It like had a lot of redemptions. It couldn't sell bonds fast enough. It had to close down. It was a big disaster for them. And it didn't, it, you know, like people worried about it, but it doesn't seem to have had a huge kind of, you know, contagion on the rest of the market. Although it's, you know, it's probably a little early. The story to tell. may not be over yet. Yeah, right. It's a little early to tell that. I just want to jump in here. I didn't really have anything prepared for my favorite story of the year, but I, you know, I do feel a little twinge of sadness that I think we may have, at least for this foreseeable period, buried the whole Grexit story and put that <laughs> behind us for a while because I've been covering the drama of whether Greece was going to leave the Eurozone, basically. You just like going to Athens, Joe. I do like trips to Athens, but I remember very vividly November 2009. No, sorry, Thanksgiving 2009 was the day that uh, the Dubai World bankruptcy announced, and everyone was like, who's next on the sovereign debt space? And I read an article, and it was talking about Greece. And that was like the first day that I really like paid attention to the Greece story. And I really think like it may come back at some point, but it felt like this was the uh, year that that was kind of put behind us. And so I'm a little yeah, a little mixed emotion. Where are the Grexit odds right now, especially cities? <laughs> cities? Yeah. Oh, right, because City Bill was and Bowder the one. And, yeah. City, uh, for those who don't know, has basically, frankly, been on the wrong side of this call several times throughout. Because <laughs> Willem Bowder, City's chief economist, thought Grexit was very likely early on. Then it got a wrong. Then that obviously didn't happen. Then they uh, called it again, basically this some this year when they had the referendum, just like a and, few days before. Yeah, right? and so yeah, I don't know. I don't know where they have it these days. I wouldn't be surprised, you know, if it were, you know, they still have like ten, twenty, thirty. It could. It could be. Yeah. Um, but it obviously. We recently had the uh, Spanish election. There, so there's no end of political turmoil in Europe, but in terms of like an acute risk of a country leaving, it seems to have uh, 2015 was the year that seems to have passed. So your favorite story is essentially the end of a story. Yeah, I think so. It's the end of a story. And I think like between that and with the Fed finally raising rates, with the uh, these new regulations coming into place, it does feel like this year was kind of a uh, at least the end of one big chapter for or you know if it was a multi-volume uh novel then at least one one book was closed this year i would say oh look who's here it's dan moss hey dan hi uh dan Dan, who are you um i am the executive editor for global economics so uh what was your favorite story this year my favorite story was about china and a movie and it's not star wars which actually is not showing in china yet it's to do with quotas uh imposed on distribution of foreign movies no my favorite story was a story about furious seven and it's box office smash in china April 14, by our colleague Malcolm Scott, who's responsible for economics coverage of Greater China. And the headline is, Furious 7 China Box Office Record Shows Consumers Rising Role. And I thought Hmm. this just encapsulated the big shift we've seen in the past 18 months. But it's really crystallized this year. Consumption now accounting Mm. for more than 50% of China's gross domestic product. This is a huge debate in the global economy, right? Whether or not China can make the transition from a sort of manufacturing-based economy to a services one, right? It's a huge shift that's prompting a huge debate. Now, the great irony is 
for years and years and years, no G7, no IMF, no G20 communique was complete without a reference to China needing to shift away from exports toward consumption and services. Mm. Well, it's happening. The problem is it's happening, not the way people envisaged. (laughs) So while a lot of the headlines are focused on commodities dive as China exports do X or China manufacturing does Y, people also ask themselves, well, how come movies can do really well and how come a company like Alibaba can do very well despite the China slowdown? Well, the answer (laughs) is China's economy it's not the same thing that Deng Xiaoping opened up mm. in the late 70s. It is now about consumption and services. Mm. Consumption and services. This is a sort of unrelated, but if they're not showing Star Wars yet, are they using the Great Firewall to keep out spoilers from the entire country? I mean, like You'd think they would make an exception for this one movie. Are you going to move so to China movie. just so you can avoid spoilers? No, I don't really care one way or another. I just think like there's so much obsession with avoiding spoilers. It seems like a problem. Like How long are they delaying it for? I don't know. I think it's not far away. Okay. And I'm certainly not an expert on the structure of media, <laughs> but this story about Furious 7 really did strike me as encapsulating this shift that we're seeing in China, which is and little understood. Were the box office numbers in China much bigger than they were in the US and everywhere else in the world? That's a great question, but it was the biggest uh, one-day box office haul. Took in 63.2 million, surpassing the previous record holder, Transformers 4. Thank you, Dan. And I should take this opportunity to mention that Dan is also a co-host on the Benchmark podcast, which is another one of Bloomberg's suite of multiplying podcasts. Well, Tracy, that was a fun conversation a really, and a, a really fun year, I would say. Uh, definitely an interesting year in markets. I feel like next year might be even more interesting and uh, a good thing that we'll be recording another show on that topic very soon. I agree. I, I do think next year will be really interesting. I was just uh, writing about this fact, which is that it feels to me like there's, an, you know, markets are always pretty uncertain. But it feels to me like there's an unusual amount of uncertainty going on this year. No one really knows what Fed liftoff is going to be like. There's a lot of debate about the state of the economy. People don't know if the emerging market growth model is broken. So I think it'll be a very interesting year, and I'm looking forward to our predictions episode. Excellent. I'm Joe Weisenthal. You can follow me on Twitter at, at the Stalwart. And I'm Tracy Alloway. You can follow me on Twitter at Tracy Alloway. We'll see you next week. Joe and I are very proud of our new podcast, Odd Lots, but we are also very proud of Bloomberg's other growing suite of original podcasts, all designed to help you navigate the complexities of business, financial markets, and the global economy. So in addition to our own podcast, please don't miss Benchmark with Dan Moss, Tori Stilwell, and Aki Ito, an informative, jargon-free look at the inner workings of the global economy. Then there's Deal of the Week with our M&A reporter, Alex Sherman, which is a breakdown of the biggest M&A deals and gives you an inside peek at corporate boardrooms. All three shows are available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Pocket Cast for Android, Bloomberg.com, and of course, the Bloomberg Terminal.
The Hartford understands protecting your business with the proper insurance can be a challenge. The Hartford team can provide coverage to suit your industry. The Hartford empowers mid- to large-size companies like yours to help manage risk, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. Let the Hartford help protect what's unique about your business. Learn how at thehartford.com. Top Thrill 2 is like no other course. Two 420-foot vertical speedways, three launches. All right, let's talk strategy. Copy that, driver. Go for maximum acceleration off the start. Measure that. You've got a short straightaway to push from 0 to 74 on the first vertical speedway. And what about the rollback? Rollback will set you up for an explosive reverse climb 420 feet in the sky so you reach 0 Gs in total weightlessness. 420 feet of straight-up speed. Let's get it. Top Thrill 2, the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch Stratocoaster. Get your tickets at cedarpoint.com.